Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Uh, Tyler, we're going out to the Pacific Northwest today. We are. And uh, maybe a little further afield uh, to talk to one of the hosts of uh, an ASPN podcast, uh, Changing Waters, our good friend from Seattle, Washington, Brad Warren. That's right, and we're going to be discussing a few really interesting issues uh, that have been in the news recently, Peter. Been in the news recently in, co- in Coastal News Today. We're going to be talking about the Klamath uh, Project, which is a U.S. Bureau of Reclamation irrigation project in southern Oregon and northern California. On the Klamath River. On the Klamath River. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, recent actions by the governor of the state of uh, Washington, Governor Inslee, and uh, one of we think, or our guest thinks, is one of the most forward-thinking uh, climate laws in the country, if not in the world. We're going to learn about that. And then we're going to talk about fisheries policy and the fishery community around the country as well. The state of fisheries on the American shoreline. Yeah. I don't know. That's a jam-packed program, a ladies show. and gentlemen. Well, yeah, with a professional, with a true pro and a true knowledgeable insider in the deal. Uh, for the sake of the audience who have, uh, may not know Brad, Brad is the director of uh, Global Ocean Health, an organization uh, to advance the perspective of the fishery community. He is also the president and executive director of the National, National Fisheries Conservation Center, an amazing group that's been around for a few decades. So really looking forward to talking to Brad. Me too. And of course, I, I host of the Changing Waters podcast. Indeed. Uh, and uh, a regular contributor to ASPN. So it's great to have him here with us today, Peter. But before we get into the show, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, Brad. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, Brad, just by way of introduction, uh, tell us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about uh, the National Fisheries Conservation Center and your work with Global Ocean Health. Sure. Well, uh, NFCC, National Fisheries Conservation Center, was founded in uh, actually 1994. Uh, at the time, I was a journalist working in fisheries and oceans coverage and, and uh, got taken under wing by fisheries leaders and scientists and conservation leaders who I was constantly interviewing. And uh, we built a um, a nonprofit to do collaborative problem solving. Uh, there was too much, and remains in the case today, there's still too much finger pointing and name calling and not enough getting together to actually solve things. Uh, so we we built an organization to do that. Um, and uh, I wound up running it uh, in, in the uh, early 2000s. It, it dawned on us gradually that carbon emissions 
we're going to change everything in the ocean, including how much fish it can make and uh, affect the livelihoods and the food supply for billions of people. Uh, so we built the Global Ocean Health Program, which we run. It's, a pro it's the main program of NFCC today. Uh, we still do some other things as well uh, that, that really relate with that. Uh, one of them is providing uh, advice to retailers and sometimes suppliers and producers of seafood uh, on how to uh, engage fruitfully in the, the issues that affect their future, the, the ability of the ocean to keep making what they bring to the table. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's dinner. Um, so um, that's kind of a broad sweep. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's an organization that uh, I'm really you know, fortunate to uh, be connected to. I've been really grateful to have the, the board and the, uh, and the support of uh, now we've just become a 1% for the planet organization. Uh, Fantastic. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, so some some good things are, are 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 coming, even in the difficult time of the pandemic, um, and uh, it's uh, uh, it's nice to see. Brad, just uh, interestingly, you were talking about being in the leadership role in the early two thousands, and the organization recognized fairly early on, I would say, uh, in the discussion about climate change. Uh, that these carbon emissions, the CO2, and climate change were significant uh, factors in the future for fisheries. And, you know, back, I don't know, Tyler, 2000? I would I'm say that's sure. ahead of the curve. I would say that was ahead of the curve. Like, not a people, a lot, a lot of, I mean, there was general knowledge. I don't, I don't actually know. I would, I'd be curious yeah. to ask Brad. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you were ahead of the curve in sort of picking it up as a major issue and organizing around that topic? One could be charitable and say that we live ahead of the curve. That would be that would that would be a little bit of a chest beating way to put it. I, and I'd, I'd be happy to tell you that it would be missing something, which is that we, you know, by nature, uh, we are scouts. We get it. We go out over the horizon and come back and report to people who are busy, kind of running operations, running things as they are, and, and, and help them understand how to get ready for what's coming. That's a, a key part of what we do. And as as we started seeing. The, just the sheer momentum of climate change. We began talking to people about it, writing about it. Uh, and one thing that became very clear is there was a ton of resistance to dealing with this, not just in the world generally and in, you know, in, 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 in you know, a, a country, the United States, that, that has not wanted to face this, uh, you know, really didn't want to face it. it. Take that and amplify it in the fisheries community, where most people are like, I, sorry, dude, I'm busy. You know, <laughs> oh, good luck. Um, and um, we uh, we realized you can't just tell the story of global warming. For, for part part of it is it was it was partisanized. Uh, when Al Gore stood up and made himself the voice of climate change, uh, in some ways he did a service to the world. Uh, I, I don't fault him for it. In others, he was so identified as a leading Democrat uh, that it it made it sort of toxic for a Republican to admit they thought this mattered. Um, and many just started viewing it as kind of a, uh, an Al Gore laughingstock issue. And the guy who says he invented the internet is the one who says, this is the real problem, you know, and screw that. So it, we, we f found that it became, it became really effective to engage people. And there was a lot of very conservative people in fishing. It's not, um, a, a, a hotbed of progressive democratic thinking. Um, it's uh, we found it uh, uh, really interesting 
that when we talked about chemical change as opposed to thermal change, um, it, it got people's attention. Hmm. You know, they remember high school chemistry. And when you, when you can show them that the ocean is acidifying and that this reduces its ability to make dinner, they get they get focused and it wound up that you know we organized a, 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 a some years of effort uh, in the industry to to and the environmental community collaboratively um, and the scientific community with them to raise attention uh, and and focus among policymakers on this upcoming problem and how to deal with it and it led to the creation of film uh, not solely by our work by any means but we had a role in helping to create the National Research Program on Ocean Acidification at NOAA. Um, Congress passed that bill, I believe, in 2009, um, after we'd been bringing fishermen to the Hill to come and talk about, and things are changing, we better find out what's happening before it eats us. Uh, and uh, scientists were coming along on those trips and kind of offering the authoritative view. And then later we sort of De developed an approach for states to, to play a role. States had previously viewed themselves as too small to make a difference in a global problem. And um, uh, in 2012, we had an opportunity working with tribes and shellfish growers to put on the governor's table a proposal to uh, create a blue ribbon panel on ocean acidification and start developing a state strategy to, to do this. And that took off and it, uh, uh, it wound up that states greatly uh, amplified uh, the, the focus and the amount of funding going into research to understand the problem and start grappling with it and work out ways of adapting um, and uh, putting attention on it so that we can get at root causes too. If people aren't paying attention, they're not going to worry about tackling pollution, the root cause of all this. You know, and the pollution stream involved is huge. It is Carbon dioxide is the largest waste stream probably in human history. It's on the order of 35 billion tons a year, uh, the dominant part of global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, 35 billion tons, to put that in, in perspective, is like, you know, 3,000 times bigger than the amount of plastic that goes in the ocean. Um, and of that 35, about a third of that, 25% to a third goes in the ocean. So it's it, a thousand times more CO2 goes in the ocean and acidifies it and drives loss of oxygen. And the warming effects also contribute to you know, depletion of its ability to make dinner. All these things add up. You're looking at a change, a driver of change that's a thousand times bigger in the ocean um, than the plastics that are beautifully visible and everyone kind of draws their attention to it and it should it's an important problem um but this one's invisible it's just immense well i i agree with peter that uh it seems like the national fisheries conservation center was an early uh you know you you used the uh, term there brad of scout yeah, scouting like over that. the horizon i really that really sticks yeah, in my like mind um <clears throat> for one because i really think that that what an asset to uh, the fisheries communities um, to have scouts looking over the horizon for those communities. I mean, and particularly when the scout discovers a Goliath of a problem uh, lumbering forward and you come back to the troops and say, hey, we've got a big uh, problem on the horizon and they don't believe you. 
<laughs> it, it, there were many comical moments in that process. I mean, there, there were people who would sit there and listen to me in, in, in you know, frozen fish warehouses <laughs> along the coast of Maine and other places, you know, and just scoff. Uh, but honestly, I have to be clear about credit due. Uh, the, the, a handful of scientists and, and researchers really developed the, the, the founding insights for this starting in the early 2000s. And we stumbled across their work and were blown away. I mean, as far as, particularly as far as the, the ocean acidification dimensions of this, that it, we, we, um, we saw that. And um, I have to say that um, another place that credit is due is we saw it because uh, Elizabeth Colbert uh, had written a beautiful, powerful, grim piece about this in The New Yorker. Huh. And, and uh, it, it was 2006. And uh, I uh, interviewed Elizabeth about a, a book she'd written on climate change and her article uh, on ocean acidification. And at the end of it, she turned to me and she said, what are you doing about ocean acidification? And I said, I, I, I had a bad answer. I actually said, nothing. There's nothing I can do. And she's an said, honest answer, though, at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and she, she said, you're wrong. With what you know and who you know, there's a lot you can do. Get busy. And wow. I had no way to contradict her. She was right. It was, it was, it was a tail between your legs. Get busy. <laughs> you know? Wow. Well, that's motivating right there. Um, and Brad, I, I want to, uh, as, as the scout over the horizon, um, I know that you have been uh, interested in and following uh, the goings on of the Klamath River. I believe you actually have done a, a pod or two uh, uh, where you've qu asked questions and done some inquiry uh, on the Klamath. But uh, for the sake of background, would you kind of give an overview of what, why the Klamath River is important? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a, a, a flare up zone in the, 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 the accelerating long-running crisis uh, that we talk about as water in the West. You know, uh, we, we have uh, limited water resources throughout the West of the United States. Uh, along the West Coast, we have salmon coming in, in, you know, streaming out of these rivers by, you know, at one point in, in you know, many millions. The Klamath River in Northern California and Southern Oregon was the third largest salmon producer on the whole coast of North America. Um, it was right behind the Columbia River and the Sacramento River. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, it's a classic case where the, the, the water, uh, other people want the water, uh, not just the fish and the people who depend on them. There's a kind of a conflict between two competing forms of food production here. Should farmers get the water for mm, crops? That's pretty good. Or should it be kept in the river to sustain salmon runs that also feed people? Uh, and uh, there's been now uh, generations of pol political struggle and litigation over this. Uh, and in fact, today there was a hearing in federal court where a federal judge refused an, emer an emergency motion filed by tribes and commercial fishermen and environmentalists who wanted to block a federal agency's decision to cut the flows in the river further in order to store more water for, you know, human use on land, mostly irrigation. Mm -hmm. uh, the judge said, I ain't getting involved in that. 
Wow. Um, and I mean, this is this will be appealed, and this, this I mean, this is this is a case. It's interesting. We, as an organization at National Fisheries Conservation Center in our Global Ocean Health Program, we never litigate. We have looked at it. We have considered it seriously. We've never done it, and the reason is that there there are organizations that are all about it. Yeah, and they live and breathe this. And our role is different. We're much more of a collaborative problem solver, um, but we appreciate what they do. And in this in this area, litigation has been a central tool. They've they've, they've won a lot of ground uh, through litigation and all kinds of activists. That's right. Brad, let me um, let me for the sake of the listeners out there, what we're talking about here is what's referred to as the Klamath Project, uh, which is a federal. Bureau of Reclamation effort that began in the early 1900s, Tyler, back in 1906. Wow. <clears throat> and this was part of that, you know. And this uh, river, where, where are we talking? So this it, it river begins in southern Oregon and crosses the California border and uh, dumps into the Pacific Ocean in northern California. So this is kind of up in the uh, the northern extent of the redwood forest lands. and Is beautiful. that the Cascade Range? Well, I think, yeah, further inland on the Cascade Range, I think. Uh, but Sounds the, Cascades. They, they're, sounds, they're part of the headwaters. Uh, yeah. But the Klamath Project, a couple of things for the audience out there. U.S. Bureau of Reclamation Project, it consists of seven dams that were constructed in this system. Uh, there are 717 miles of irrigation canals. And this project irrigates about 225,000 acres of farmland. Uh, and uh, they've also drained 80,000 acres of wetlands to create this farmland. They, they drew down the lakes, drained the wetlands, and converted it into farmland. This was one of those western water projects, Tyler, you know, like they have down in Southern California, my, where you're from. My grandpa loved these things. I mean, <laughs> these were let big. me tell you something. When the, these big western dams went in, I mean, he took the family. Yeah, it was a this was a point of national pride, ladies and gentlemen, to go see. And, you know, and it certainly was successful, Brad, as you said, in in making this region uh, suitable for up for land based agriculture, for agriculture. But the sacrifice of the river's integrity, as as you said, the third largest salmon producing stream in the uh, lower 48 uh, has really created this battle between the farmers and the irrigators and the indigenous community and the farmers and, i mean and the uh, fishermen and not to mention the wildlife refuge there and the importance of this area on the pacific flyway and the endangered species that are involved in these lakes the lost river sucker and the snort nuts but anyway so that's kind of the deal this was a major major replumbing of a region of northern california and uh what a battle, Brad. So give us, you know, tell, yeah, you were talking about the court case, but um, what can you, what can you tell us about the conflict over the 20th century? Where this, yeah, it's can been, we get it's a, been 100 years a little bit of a timeline was, yeah. of uh, how this conflict escalated? Yeah. Sure. Well, let's go right back to the beginning. John Wesley Powell was the sort of pioneering Western hydrologist who founded the, the U.S. Geological Service. Uh, was a hero of uh, the kind of westward ho development world, and he went and prospected the West with a with a, an expedition, and came back with a report that said, basically it's dry, and only about two percent of it is farmable. 
it's this is not a place that can support massive quantities of people uh, and he addressed a, um, a famously an audience of uh, irrigators and said quote gentlemen you are piling up a heritage and co of conflict and litigation over water rights for which there is not sufficient water to supply the land this bitterly disappointed his audience who viewed him as a hero until that moment and then viewed him as a pariah they ignored his advice uh, they went ahead and uh, you know damned every river they could find all over the west and created you know honestly many good things and a lot of harm it was both uh, you know, we got thriving agricultural communities throughout the interior West from the from the inside of the Sierra Nevada and the inside of the Cascade West. I'm sorry, east all the way to the Rockies. There, there are, you know, agricultural uh, communities and and a vast amount of prosperity that grew out of this. Um, the uh, you know, later we had the development of the uh, following the same uh, sort of ideology uh that you know we we can make nature deliver what it doesn't have you know in effect um uh we we had the 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 bonneville power administration and the um uh the bureau of reclamation and the army corps of engineers building dams you know sometimes by the dozen i mean all told there are i think the number is in the hundreds of dams in the columbia basin alone um, and, you know, 52 or so major ones in the main stem and its major tributaries, and then uh, hundreds of little ones. Um, these were engines of, of prosperity in many communities, and they, they ruined the sort of largest salmon factories the world had ever known, these river systems that <laughs> were the, the backbone of salmon country, around which whole communities, uh, many of them indigenous communities, and uh, you know, people who settled the West with a different idea than farming, they settled to fish, and they, they there were thousands of fishing people, dependent on the Columbia alone, thousands more down the coast in, in on you know near the mouth of the Sacramento around around the uh, the Bay Area, fishing salmon um, up the coast fishing sound this this was uh to be honest it's it's the heritage i came from uh my family uh in the generation of my grandparents uh got through the depression by uh catching fish re quote recreational they were really subsistence fishermen feeding themselves and their neighbors when nobody had work um and uh they uh they carried that for them that wasn't just livelihood uh, it wasn't just food it was the meaning of life mm. and as the dams came up and accelerated the development of, of dam building accelerated through the 20th century up to you know the late 20th century around the 70s the last of the major ones were built as i was growing up i watched my grandparents sink into a kind of silent rage it, mm. it was a, a a sort of they were stumped um and uh I watched their their brothers and sisters, my great uncles, my grand, in the same state. It was it was incredibly sad. I would like to just explore that a little bit. Were, were they? Was that rage because of the habitat loss itself and the the loss of the fish, or was it because their fellow citizens and neighbors and fellow humans 
allowed that to happen? I'm curious. Yeah, what was the perception like? I'm you know, even back then to their time of about the consequences of these projects. It was both of the things you mentioned. It was it, it just the, the heartbreak at the loss and the and the fury at at other humans who uh, just destroyed both the human and the natural heritage uh, in the interest of what they viewed as business. This was all about profit. Um, and, you know, it, they, they had a very, uh, as was common, not only with them, but I think many people at the time had, had a very simple black and white view of the world. And, you know, it, the, there was no question which side they were on. You know, they were with the fish. Um, and they, they, they lost. Um, and it, what's interesting is that since that time, since the end of their era, uh, I would say starting really um, in the 70s and 80s and building since then, the, the uh, Western communities and states and, and the feds have met this collapse of the salmon resource with a heroic investment in restoration and recovery. Mm -hmm. And the climate is a classic example of that. After decades of struggle, they're about to remove four dams on the river. Um, they uh, they have worked out ways to do this without dewatering all the farms. Um, so there's been an enormous amount of, of negotiation and fighting uh, leading to you know plans, and it's been um, it's it's going to continue to be a struggle. This is not a, a one and done. No. Uh, uh, but we're looking at a massive uh, reversal of of the tide of destruction. Uh, from the point of view of the fish and and a, more of a living up to john wesley powell's vision where people say well you can't just use it and waste it there isn't that much you've got to get better at the way you manage water um, because it costs it's devastating to lose all the that that food and those livelihoods and that way of life and you know whole whole communities um, have been yeah. disappeared well maybe we're starting to Maybe we're getting to a point where we're starting to understand what John Wesley Powell was saying back in the early 1900s about the West and uh, it's uh, as an arid region where there really uh, are challenges with respect to water. Uh, we're starting to see real discussion of removing dams in Idaho on the Snake River, which is something, Brad, I never thought I would see a Republican senator from the state of Idaho talking about removing those dams on the snake river i mean there really are these extraordinary changes and rethinking of our water infrastructure in the west what do you what do you make of the snake river dam removal initiative uh which is part of the columbia river drainage uh, basin by the way for folks out there who aren't familiar yeah well i'm excited to see it i'm i'm particularly excited to see a kind of nixon goes to china moment with mike simpson proposing this uh, yeah. new plan for dam removal it's designed to be a common solution that works for all of the competing interests it's not a i'm with the fish screw everyone else kind of plan um it, and it's coming from a republican so yeah. there, there's a there's a lot about this to be interested in i i I believe the, um, the Democratic federal legislators in the region have met this with some wariness hmm. because he's a Republican. And, you know, these these folks are so used to warring with each other. Yeah. It makes to, to, you know, to build common cause. But the sure. common cause is, is visible. 
I'm Should they be worried about that? I, uh, is there reason to be concerned that uh, Senator uh, Simpson is the one who's yeah. pushing this forward? Or it doesn't seem to be a concern to me. The outcome is what we're looking at, isn't it? Well, that's how I've tended to view it. Um, I don't know that everyone else always does. Hmm. Um, there's, when there's just that much history of acrimony between the parties, yeah, relationship can can poison even a goodwill. Yeah, um, I, so I don't. Know, yeah, I don't know where this will land. Um, okay. Well, it's amazing to see it on the agenda and being seriously talked about. Uh, because those are part of the the great Columbia River water management system and power production system, one of the prides and joys of the uh, of you know the coast uh, of the uh, mid early what talking about nineteen thirties nineteen forties western reclamation projects. These were, as you said, Tyler. This is stuff your grandfather went to see. Yeah, I just want to pause and just kind of like ponder on the paradigm shift here Mm -hmm. because um brad as you mentioned i mean lake powell named after john wesley powell is a massive reservoir in the middle of the desert like if you look at it on a satellite image it is just sun bleached desert and then this massive (laughs) reservoir and this idea of um engineering with nature which in some respects you you might when we talked to I'm blanking on that uh, the guy from UPenn who we spoke with who wrote the book I yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. called engineering with nature yes, or something along those yes, lines it is but uh, you know he said you begin with asking yourself like what is the land what what is the environment naturally trying to do here and um, the land in the desert is not naturally trying to create this big no. uh, Lake Powell, you no. know? No. And, um, but in the thirties and forties, when they were building these things, a, I think it was jobs and it was about electric, like the technology bringing electricity for sure. Bring, you know, the, this is to say nothing of the transportation corridors. And yeah. as Brad mentioned, the just voluminous prosperity that, was generated i mean on paper it was a no-brainer for the federal government the big investor here being the federal government in western lands to just just keep pouring money into it um and now we live in a world where we want to take that take those investments and almost reverse it what a paradigm maybe yeah at least rethink it brad are we how significant is this paradigm shift tyler's talking about well there's damn removals going on up and down the west coast uh, there are dam removals going on on the East Coast. Uh, I, I think that, that, that it's probably fair to qualify the term reversal. It is a reversal, but it's it's more of a calibration than an outright reversal and, uh-huh. and a, a repudiation of all dams. We're looking at removal of dams that no longer serve their purpose well, that cause a lot of unnecessary damage. We're not looking at, at removal of dams that work great and that uh, also have good fish passage facilities by and large those are not being yanked out well they shouldn't if they're functioning properly and balancing the impacts and the benefits but it is i mean come on the trends now are to take them down well some like the elwood river are we putting new dams in i when was the last time the federal government put a dam in i mean i know we do some levy work yeah i don't think so brad are we building any hydroelectric dams build more dams uh, and they will be different kinds and in different altitudes Uh Uh, because of increasing drought is which is largely a function of climate change um there's a a a massive movement it's a good subject to come back to in another podcast later 
uh, it, that in, entails people both on both sides of the big water wars uh, to find ways to enhance water storage. We were losing our snowpack. Snowpack is the great water storage, particularly yeah. in the northern part of the West Coast, but all the way down to central California, to, you know, to the Bay Area. Snowpack has historically been important and, and very so, very much so up in Washington and Oregon. We're losing it. Yeah. As, as we lose it, we've got to come up with something else. So you get tribes, the, the historical great champions of the salmon, uh, in agreement with irrigators that you've got to have a way to... to to sustain water flows, uh, they they both want the water, um, and they, they both know that uh, losing the greatest water storage of all, bigger than all the dams put together, uh, is is a, kind of an unworkable path. So, I think we will see a new era of dam construction with a completely different uh, mission and different engineering, and and hopefully an intention uh, to 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 work well for both kinds of, well, the multiple kinds of use of these river systems. Well, and the other thing, Peter, that comes to mind for me, and I know our beach managers out there, shoreline managers, is the sediment transport element here. Yeah. That the the not only are uh, fish impacted um, when you impact, you know, for, for those not in the Pacific Northwest or on the West Coast, if you're on the East Coast, you can think about your inlets. You can think about your... Uh, engineered systems there, ship channels, that kind of thing, and how, and, and dams. I mean, let's be real. There's right. a lot of uh, plumbing work on the East Coast, to say the least. But this all impacts sediment transport, yeah. and that impacts the beach. Yeah. And so we're spending all these billions of dollars renourishing and moving uh, material around. And out on the West Coast, particularly, you know, I can speak very uh, confidently about Ventura way down on the Ventura River, uh, Brad, which is a little steelhead situation um, sure. in Southern California. But uh, the Matillaha Dam, which was the subject of that Patagonia film, um, is was built back again in the 50s. It was supposed to be a recreational lake. Useless you know, just now. Totally useless. Filled with sediment. We went to see it. That should be on the beach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and... and just for the sake, just to kind of round out this Klamath River discussion, Peter, the the dam removal project that uh, you went and visited. Yeah, well, well the Elwood Dam. The Elwood Dam. Which I know is in Brad's neck of the woods that uh, that drains into the Juan de Fuca uh, on the Olympic Peninsula. And Brad, I think that that project. Kind of a is, pioneering project. I understand of. that one's been really successful, that the. The, the habitat restoration, is it generally considered successful or can you give us a quick update on the Elwood Dam removal? There's a, a lot about that that I, I haven't followed the latest, but everything I've ever read about it and all that I've heard from people who are directly involved, it's been, it's been very successful. It, it, success in this kind of process takes some time. It's a river process you're restoring. It's not just, a, again, not one and done. Yeah. Uh, sediment locked up behind the dam does get unleashed it does make some trouble downstream you've got to be prepared for that and yeah. allow time for the system to kind of unclog um and you know it, you're, you're really right to draw attention to the sediment problem that's one of the yeah the, the little considered consequences and out on the coast as we deal with 
not only the normal coastal processes that require that sediment feed just to maintain healthy environments for for beaches to continue to exist for example uh for for the intertidal zone to continue to be a healthy place for you know growth of intertidal organisms like clams and oysters that we like to eat but add to that the climate change and sea level rise are 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 elevating literally elevating the need for uh re-engineering coastal uh, uh, landforms to protect the places we we have to protect and to allow water back into restored uh, uh, estuaries that are vital feeding grounds for for fish again places we diked and dammed and dried up and turned into pastures yeah. and then parking lots and industrial zones um, and th- all those places as we're getting more serious about restoration uh, there is an enormous demand for sediment and aggregate to to supply that work, and it is not well supplied. No. And there, there is a a, a global uh, pinch point uh, in the supply of material coming. It's it, it's another good subject for future. That is that's a, a, a another that's a huge subject area, and uh, I want to ask Brad when I look at the Klamath River project and. Uh, as you said, in in earlier in the month of May here, I think it was the 12th, the Bureau of Reclamation announced that they were going to release no water from the upper Klamath Lake down the main channel of the uh, Klamath River. And that's important because downstream, that's where the or- irrigators and the farmers draw the water to keep their crops alive. So what the Bureau of Reclamation did this month was they said no water is going to leave the upper Klamath Lake because there are some endangered sucker fish up there and that are important to the indigenous community. And with the drought coming, we're not going to let any water out. Uh, Brad, that story to me sets up like the snail daughter in California and, and has the potential to be a massive backlash uh, against uh, this protective measure for this fish these endangered suckers i wish it wasn't called a sucker well i, think we I know gotten it's, it's not a bad looking fish i think you can look it up but the uh, <laughs> this is called the lost river. there's two species that are listed as endangered the lost river sucker and the sh- uh, snort short nosed sucker yeah not very appealing if you you're know, looking we, for a you know we we learned this uh in you know the, in the private sector when they're marketing a fish if it has a bad name they just change the change. name <laughs> i feel like the conservation community should take a page out of that well, and this, just rename this thing but brad i mean do you see this escalating with the private property rights interests that are so strong the division in the politics this bureau of reclamation decision on the klamath project seems uh potentially explosive i agree and i think it has already been so i mean we've seen really um hardball protests from farmers over these kinds of decisions in the past i wouldn't be surprised if we see it here we've seen the klamath um project and the farmers dependent on it become kind of a a a flashpoint in the uh, the rise of the uh frankly the extreme right um yeah and uh, sort of extremist people exploiting their their tragic story you know if, if you're a farmer and you believe the beautiful myth that there's enough water and you can just do everything you want and you don't have to worry about the the, the fish 
and you're operating in a legal system that says one use it or lose it and and, you know, and, yeah. and two first and right first in time you know you, you wind up having if you have senior water rights you have to use them even if you don't have a use for them so you waste it and that allows you to keep it and I mean, these are incentives built into a legal system that are deeply perverse and entrap people who are just trying to make a living and make good food um in uh, and some, some of whom were veterans who were promised farmland as a reward for their service and you know so it, it's kind of like how, how entrapped can you possibly be uh, if and if you corner people they act like cornered people right you know, they, what you get is 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 an it's we've made a bed and we're lying in it now it's not a good bed and the, these people are in, really in the pain point and it's i i I have nothing against them. I think they, you know, history has not been kind to them. And it's, I mean, I am on the other side, right? I'm a fish guy, but I look at them and, and, and as has often been the case, fish people and farm people have looked at each other and said, we wear the same car hearts. We drive the same pickup trucks. We both make food. Yeah. How producers. Yeah, know, everyone knows the cost of diesel. Yeah. In exactly. both those groups. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sympathy between these these groups, uh, but it's um, it's there's also deep deep entrenched competition. Both both are uh, they want the water. Well, it's again you know the I look to that paradigm shift, uh, and it's just so uh, I mean the the what you're asking as Powell said back in the day you're asking the water to be stretched further and further and further, particularly with climate change, the pie is getting smaller and it just seems like it is, uh, Peter, I, I, I for sure there, this is going to result in some fireworks and we're going to need to follow it and, um, maybe do some additional, uh, podcasting on this subject. Yeah. I know we're going to move on to another topic, but we the do. last, yeah, please do. but the last thing I want to say about this and, and, and to pay attention, if y'all remember the Malheur national wildlife refuge in Oregon was taken over a couple this is of the years. Bundys. This is the Bundy's Eamon Bundy. There is an organization he is with called the people's rights, uh, organization. And he is now, uh, coming to the Klamath river project protest discussion. So, one of the things uh, I'm hoping, uh, Brad, as this moves forward and this becomes, uh, as you said, it's been intense and a tense situation between irrigators and other interests on the Klamath River for a while. But uh, I'm hoping some cooler heads prevail here. This is dangerous when they when the circumstances that that the entire flow for the season is what they've said is not going to be released to those downstream irrigators and. Uh, that gets people excited and makes right. me worry. Well, it, you know, it has had equally devastating consequences for the fishery-dependent tribes on the river. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there is a disease outbreak detected this month that's uh, infecting at this point, oh, uh, you know, more than 90% of the young salmon in the river. Um, yeah. And 70% of the juvenile Chinook in the river have been, uh, that they're finding are dead. Yeah, um, this is uh, going to affect the production of food and livelihood for, for example, it's a crisis. Yeah, this, this is, is a crisis. This is not an exaggeration. Okay. When the water level is not high enough, the water gets hot. 
there is a there is a there is a uh, toxin or a, a, it is a, a pathogen that's in the water, and it literally is in the testing recently infecting more than seventy percent, seventy ninety percent of the smolts in the river are infected, and and so what they're talking about here. Uh, is the loss of an entire generation or year of salmon production that the river has. So um, it's interesting, Brad, you're right. The irrigators and the, the indigenous community and the fisher uh, fishing interests and the downstream salmon interests are on the same side of this equation. They need the water. So it's such complicated stuff, this Western water law and these federal project management and the environmental implications, because we've changed the world. Well, we've messed like, with it. And there's a lot of stuff that happens here now. It just seems like they just had no, I mean, they meaning the people who cast the die back in the day. No, they weren't thinking about it. It's like they had no idea that the population was going to become what it was you know it's like they lived in a smaller world and the i don't know well ask brad brad is that fair if you go back and look at the early discussion of the bureau of reclamation and the corps of engineers and the damming of western rivers uh i think there were voices that recognized the negative consequences of these projects at the time um how well was it understood originally do you think I, it's it's a good question and worth worth uh, actually a, a doing a different show to dig into that more, but there certainly were voices saying, "Whoa, Nelly, this ain't gonna work." I mean, among them was John Wesley Powell, you know, the founder of the USGS. But uh, you also had predominantly who were the stakeholders, the economic interests, who actually said, "You know, this this doesn't work." They were immigrant fishermen they were tribal fishermen yeah they were nobodies they were the kind of people you can plow under in the name of progress right and they, still do they they red listed some of the fishermen i knew who fought those fights in the 1920s and 30s wow. um they they were you know they 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 were d- defined as communists and and you know actually the word is blacklisted and and you know that that was the kind of hmm. treatment that people got who raised their voices. Yeah, back when the San Francisco, uh, San Francisco Creek Dam collapsed in the Ventura Valley watershed in the twenties, um, it 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 wiped out. I think it was four hundred homes and killed twelve hundred people. Um, and uh, the uh, the response of the authorities was to post cops at the county border so that attorneys coming up from L.A. to represent the injured and uh, families uh, were, were blocked at uh, the road. That's that's how this country has operated. Hardball politics when it comes yes. to water. Western West. shit right there. Yeah. That's yeah. Western. Um, let's we move t- on. Let's yeah, move let's on. talk. Uh, so Governor Inslee, the governor of the great state of Washington, uh, recently signed uh, a very important bill that you've been following uh, related to climate change. Tell our audience about what Governor Inslee just did. Happy to. Um, the uh, And uh, full disclosure, my organization has for years worked to uh, support this kind of policy and to help. Uh, people uh, who depend on healthy resources on the coast and even uh, in farm communities, some shape it so that it can work for them. 
because it's so important that it work for everyone. Um, the law just passed is called the Climate Commitment Act. It is probably the strongest climate law in the U.S. and some people would say perhaps in the world. Um, it it is wow. works on the same principles as California's cap and trade system. Uh, it's um, it will raise billions of dollars over the next few decades uh, on the order of five hundred million dollars a year, and invested in adaptation to help people adapt to the impacts and mitigation to help them become the solution to reduce pollution. It is the crown jewel. After several years of basically democratic dominance in Olympia, the state capital, where they've passed a string of smaller kind of piecemeal climate acts, many of them, um, you know, good on their own merits, but but uh, they how they interact has been a little bit of a concern to us. Uh, is there a risk of tying shoelaces together with the best of intentions? Um, we've been concerned about that. When you build one of these big cap and trade systems that's all inclusive, uh, it kind of knits the system together in some ways. And it solves the central problem of climate, which is who's going to pay for it? How on earth? I mean, if this was free, it had been solved a long time ago. It's not. It takes money to be, to go green, right? Not everyone can buy a Tesla. Not everyone can put solar on their roof. Um, and if you uh, if you don't help the guy who has to drive a beater 1980 F250 pickup truck, um, and you only help the guy who's got a job at Microsoft who can afford his Tesla anyway, uh, you ain't solving it. Um, it's uh, it it takes a, a, an equitable and um, a generous approach, uh, the same kind of generosity that in its time was applied to the building of the dams to create a, a, a rising tide that lifts all boats. And ultimately, an act like this creates immense opportunities for those who are paying attention and show up. Um, it does have a risk. People who don't show up risk getting kind of um, stuck with their old uh, you know, gas hog cars uh, and transportation is about half the problem. And it's, you know, as the cost of fuel goes up because we're putting a price on the carbon in it, if you're stuck with your old uh, gas hog car, your energy burden goes up. Um, and that's not the solution we need. What we need is to get those people involved in, in getting the help the system can provide so that they can buy a more efficient car or retrofit their existing vehicle to make it more efficient or, you know, go electric if it's appropriate for them. Not everyone can do that. Um, it, you know, there are a number of options. It, a lot of it is, is going to focus on transportation. The governor signed this bill this week and he made two very interesting changes. I'll, I'll, I'll describe those briefly. In general, he protected it from a political risk by vetoing a part that, um, uh, ties its implementation to pass passage within the next year or two of a, a bill creating a, a gas tax to fund uh, uh, more uh, highways and roads. Um, and uh, that was kind of a, 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 a point of debate that some people viewed as a poison pill. Um, and he vetoed that part. He also vetoed, vetoed a part that was very important to tribes who worked hard to get this passed, um, some of whom were uh, we worked with them to help them kind of uh, get started in this debate a few years ago. Uh, and 
they they wanted a, a a tribal right of consultation and ultimately veto over projects that would affect tribal resources and lands and um that uh, that was built into the statute and he vetoed that part it was quite controversial and it's unclear what what the politics around that were just yet we we don't have the inside track on that yet tribes will be mad um but uh, some of the folks who uh, most wanted that also are celebrating the law's passage uh, from the tribal leadership uh, so it's i think we can expect some continued tumult over those two dimensions um uh, the attempt to tie in transportation funding more more tarmac uh and the question of how tribes who worked so hard to get this done um play in the management of the investments essentially the decision about what to invest in um uh and they wanted to make sure that nothing got built under this that would wreck their habitats and, and environments that they depend on for healthy fish runs for example okay so uh for someone like me uh, did you describe this as a cap and trade style thing yeah it's 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 similar to the cap and trade system in california with some differences, uh, which are, are in part a result of criticism of the California bill, uh, which some people view as having insufficiently protected the interests of, of uh, highly climate uh, and pollution burdened communities, the, the poor, the disadvantaged, the, the communities that, that minority communities that uh, often are next to a, a, a big belching factory. and. Um, in, in this case, they built in some protections for that, which uh, are themselves perhaps a watermark. Uh, a lot of careful work mm. to make it uh, more just and inclusive, um, which is really crucial because uh, our climate solution only works if it works for everyone. This is when it goes right back to the words of the old gospel song. You know, none of us are free uh, it, as long as one of us is in chains. Mm-hmm. Well, it it's true and i think you're right to emphasize that uh the answer to this can't be uh for uh marginalized underrepresented or poorer communities to simply bear the burden of the transformation that's necessary to address climate change and uh you know help out the the folks who want to buy tesla that's not the way it goes uh this is important this law the Climate Commitment Act uh, establishes a a hard cap on the state of Washington's emission is going to force some changes in industry, and they're doing it in a way with environmental justice components built in. Um, it's about generating the revenue to make the investments. Uh, so, can you explain to me where that money comes from? So, do you pay a tax? How yeah, do you? How yeah. does that work? Yeah, tell us about yeah. that. Uh, there will be a a, a price. Uh, on uh, fuels that shows up at the phone. Um, and uh, we don't know how much yet. We're waiting to hear about that. We'll probably learn more this week. Um, but uh, with the cap is a, is, is a sloping control curve. It goes down over time. When you get to 2050, it, it will have reduced the allowable emissions of greenhouse gases in Washington state by 95%. Uh, and uh, if it if wow. all works to plan. And there's mm-hmm. pretty good reason to think it could. All right. Based on the performance of these so 2050. Far. Yes, it's a zero yeah. emissions target it's in 2021. Yeah, so we got to get about that's, that's 29 nice. years from now. That's impressive. The state of Washington is supposedly... 95. Yeah, going to be essentially a net zero contributor yeah. is the goal. 
And right. uh, it's, so, it's, the way you you get the money is that you charge uh, refiners and other polluters for their emissions, and then they um, uh, if they can't if they if they go beyond the, their allowed part, they get a quota basically, uh, and they're they're allowed up to this much uh, emissions, and the amount they're allowed declines over time under that overall control rule. And if they can't meet the compliance obligation and reduce their emissions enough to keep up, then they have to pay in. And mm -hmm. what they pay in increases um, if, um, if they have to buy offsets. Um, and uh, for each time yeah, that they you got a trade. Yeah, if, if, uh, yeah, that's right. So that's where the trade comes from. Ah. They, they're, they're, they're charged a price for each time that they emit. Um, and the, the largest emitters are who's, who's um, affected. You've got to be emitting 25,000 tons a year. Uh, there are not very many places in Washington that do. Uh, but that for fuel, that will get passed down into fuel prices. And we'll see a price, we're guessing, in the neighborhood of, you know, 15 cents or thereabouts mm. uh, per gallon uh, in the beginning. And it'll probably rise. Um, 15 cents is within the sort of noise of price variability at the pump. Most people will not notice much from that. But what they will notice, if there's another building. Bundy will notice, I'll tell you that Bundy guy. He's going to be all over this. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, there, there will be um, likely efforts to repeal it. Uh, you know, we can expect lawsuits. Um, there is, there's a lot of talk about that. Oh, I, I think we should go full steam ahead. It sounds like a great, a great uh, policy. And and here's the thing that's a good reminder out there, Brad, for for folks. There are a couple of ways that this issue has been talked about over the last 25 years. One was the government regulatory framework of uh, requiring changes in technology at the factory and passing lots of regulatory rules and technical standards on how emissions should be managed a hard regulatory approach our friends on the conservative side of the of the dial uh, don't like government regulation what they like is market-based solutions they'll tell you and cap and trade is originally a conservative alternative to command and control regulatory approaches that were being debated early on on this issue and others like it so I'm hoping that the use of the market incentive approach, which is the conservative, uh, more conservative, I think, uh, policy to handle climate change uh, will be received well by some. Uh, there will obviously be uh, those who oppose any of this kind of stuff. But what do you think? What's your prediction in terms of this politics in Washington state? Uh, it's a big move by the governor to sign this bill. Uh, what's your sense? Is he going to have the kind of support uh, to keep this thing in place? Or do you think that uh, this generates a strong opponent in his next election from the conservative side? It's, it's a good question. And, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball that's, you know, that's all that reliable for this. But, um, you know, you're looking at by 2037, putting $5.2 billion of Climate Commitment Act revenue into transportation projects that reduce carbon emissions. So uh, a lot of that will benefit rural conservative districts. Uh, I expect that the, the yeah. benefits over time will accrue and become obvious. People will save money on fuel, actually. 
um, they will save uh, their energy burdens should go down. The biggest energy bill anybody pays is the fuel they put in their vehicles. Hmm. Um, it's it's by far the largest cost. Really? Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess it is for us as individuals, isn't it? Probably is certainly more than my electric bill. I think if I add it up for the month, I don't know. My fuel I, bill for my cars. Well, here in Texas, I think, uh, you know, we drive a lot. Fuel's a little cheaper. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess it depends on where you live case. and how you live, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's normally the case that, especially in rural areas, the transportation fuel burden is the biggest cost center in, in yeah, energy. I believe that. So, and in 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 urban areas it isn't always so but um the um the the rural areas are critical here because in the political geography of washington and many other states Mm -hmm. that uh, the the homeland of the conservative rebellion against climate policy and it it and as those people benefit from it some of the wind goes out of the sails another key piece here is that uh, BP, which spent millions fighting the last major proposal of its kind in 2018 in Washington State, uh, uh, BP signed on as part of the coalition to get it passed. So did a, wow. another company, a Finnish company called Nesti, uh, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but that's their name, N-E-S-T-E. Um, and they, uh, so some oil companies were active proponents of this, and they had. I think it, you have to view this as business strategy on their part. They know the world is changing. They know that they are going to have to change too. They know that they can find ways to play this new system that work for them. There's business in it for them. And if there is a price on carbon, they can get paid for reducing pollution. Uh, in fact, uh, under, you know, as you know well, we've discussed it elsewhere, they already do get paid and they have experience with this under yeah. Rule 45Q in the, the IRS code. So, Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first U.S. national carbon price, and most people don't even know it's there. That's correct. Um, you know, I think it's it. I am encouraged by the fact that BP stepped forward, and I did notice it. They featured the announcement of this bill on their webpage. Even um, these companies know that the world n- needs to change, and the deeper thinkers uh, who move past uh, the immediate knee-jerk uh, implications of cost to them or how this is going to require energy companies is how BP starts to think of itself. They are an energy company, not an oil and gas company is kind of the transition they're in. Uh, They're investing in wind energy uh, and other alternative sources. Now this is, this is the kind of transition and leadership we need these companies to make. Um, And Brad, I wanted to just mention your very first podcast, uh, which was back in February, 2019, Tyler. That's how long we've been doing this. That's a long time. More than two years ago was with the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. And I remember this show very well. And it had to do with climate change policy. And Mary Robinson said definitively in that interview, you have got to figure out a way to equitably distribute the benefits and the costs of this transition. And the working people around the world have got to receive benefits of that. It's got to be clear in rural America that taking on climate change is going to help them. And you've got to structure the solution in a way that does. Do you remember that, uh, Brad? That's exactly yeah, what I yeah. remember her saying. Yeah, yeah. We, we, were, uh, we were really interested in how she would respond to that because, you know, Ireland has historically been a place with a, uh, a lot of poverty. It's, it's prosperous right now, but mm-hmm. 
they know what poverty is they know what resource dependence is they know what it is to have to fish and farm to, for a living and um you know mary robinson uh, came from that country and became one of the global thought leaders on climate policy um and you know she she thinks hard about how to make it work for not just the elites who are the uh, in, frankly in some ways the legitimate targets of criticism from the right yeah and and um but also for just working folks yeah uh, if we if we do not design these policies to work for everyone uh the consequences will come back and we won't like them yeah well uh look i we've been going for about an hour i've got one more topic i just want to uh, quickly hit and um you know peter we talk a lot about uh, coastal culture and the siloed nature of the American shoreline and trying to create a culture of unity and culture. We talk a lot about culture. I think it's an important thing. Right. And Brad, uh, I'm really interested to know, uh, before we close out, what your take is, what do you consider to be the state of um, fishery communities right now and i'm really interested in you know there's kind of this policy management side and i'd love to get your take on that but also the culture of adaptivity and yeah. are our coastal communities turning the corner here and seeing an optimistic future or not i'd say it's a mixed bag um the uh the, the general trend we're seeing is a, a a growing emphasis on adaptation strategies in coastal communities and coastal tribes, uh, in uh, even in fisheries where people are starting to look at, can we figure out ways to manage uh, fishery allocations so that people can follow the fish north and offshore into cooler waters as the fish migrate away from the heat uh, in, in many areas, uh, really globally that's happening. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 there's those kind of changes, massive changes in the way that people think about how they're doing environmental restoration is billions and billions of dollars being invested in, in river restoration, estuary restoration, coastal restoration. And it, in the past, it used to be thought of largely as a static of, uh, objective. Well, you put the river back together the way nature made it and you're good, right? Well, no, you're never going to get back to the way nature, nature made it because nature is now changing as a result of our climate impacts and our not only thermal but chemical impacts in the water. We've altered its fundamental geochemistry. Yep. It ain't going to go back the way it was for at least centuries. And um, in the meantime, adaptation has to occur. So people are starting to think of their objectives in dynamic terms mm. as part of how you, how you make a changing world still work for the the humans and the organisms that we depend on yeah. in our world. Well, I got to tell you, Brad, I think you're right that uh, we are we are going to have to be actively engaged uh, in the long term, forever uh, tweaking, adjusting uh, of these natural systems to try to get their function, their natural function values. It's called back operating but you know i've just i have a it gives me a sense of dread uh because the complexity of these systems the nature of our decision making processes i what i think about when you when you talk about the necessity of that restoration activity uh being required you're right you're quite right 
Um, I think of what the Corps of Engineers did on the Columbia River when uh, when it came to the salmon and they needed to get these smolts downstream at the right time. Well, what did they do? They put them on a barge and they sailed them down the damn river. And, or in, and in some cases, they put them in planes and flew them down the river. I mean, I you know, there's an arrogance in, in us as human beings. We think we can we think we can tinker with these systems um and i'm not sure we're smart enough i i I'm, i don't know maybe i'm feeling depressed today tyler because i'm i'm thinking i don't think we can do it but uh help me out brad you're better at, at being an optimist about this that's what i think about when you say that you you raise a fair question and it's a must a much debated question uh, are we smart enough uh, to uh, to uh, is not only to clean up the mess we made, yeah. but adapt to the mess we can't clean up, and uh, it's it, it it really is. Uh, you get to choose whether you think we can do this or not. Yeah, there, there is substantial evidence on both sides of that question, um, and what uh, whether we do it well or badly, uh, rather than whether we do it. I yeah. think is, is the is the real question. People will do what they think they need to to adapt, and uh, and to reduce the the damage, um, and to uh, that means uh, addressing, um, you know, both long term systemic problems and just here here today. You know, how do I put food on the table? This is how humans are. We we will do these things. I think that the the challenge becomes. Given that we're not as bright as we wish we were, what can we do that's as risk averse as possible and as likely to work as possible? And yeah, and equitable. Yeah, um, that's right. It's I, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you do we, we are going to respond to this. There's there's not a no response alternative. It it because it'll happen all over the world in bits and pieces and big ways and in small ways. Things as large as. Uh, Governor Inslee signing the climate commitment bill and national level, level rest, uh, legislation down to local communities and local river uh, organizations uh, and estuary groups and friends of this and friends of that, you know, planting some marsh and working on oyster restoration. It's going to be the whole spectrum. We are going to do it. And I, you know, you ha- you're right. You have to choose whether you think we can do that well or not. And I think the only really good choice is to say we're going to do the best we can. That's what we can do. And uh, you're right. That's that's the right uh, clear minded way to understand what we're heading into. Um, but last question, uh, Brad, on this culture issue that Tyler raised about the fishery community around the country. Um they're moving into adaptation thinking you said uh do you encounter uh the kind of uh simple rejection of the, these of climate change and the implications for fisheries uh in 1920 i mean 2021 that you did in 2002 is it different yeah we we still do but it is different um, more people are finding ways to get on board that work for them. And I'll give you an example. This this one took me by surprise. It, it, it's a recent example, maybe a couple of years ago. I was in Salem, Oregon, um, uh, essentially uh, introducing uh, fishermen to um, uh, to the legislators, who, the legislators who were trying to pass a climate policy there, and the ones who weren't really trying and were trying to figure out whether it made any sense. 
and you know, it, and the fishermen were saying, "Well, let's figure out how to make it make sense because we got to have something because you know this does affect us." And um, all around us, uh, you know, working that same set of issues, were a whole lot of uh, folks coming from an environmental perspective rather than a fishing perspective. And one of the conservative senators pulled me aside in the aisle and he said, "Man, some of these people—they're they're climate Nazis." I mean, I, I, what I like about you is you're you're talking about things like ocean acidification. That's real, you know. It's it's not this phony stuff about climate. It's you're talking about ocean that ocean acidification. That's I'll chemistry. Take it. That's yeah, I'll take it. And he gave me a lecture about how real ocean acidification yeah. is for 15 minutes. And I, I thought, you know, this may not be the same as getting on board the way I thought people should. Yeah, but he he's getting on board the way he can. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I've often said, uh, if you want to understand climate change, look in the water, don't look in the air. People can't deal with, you know, the things they can't see in parts per millions of carbon and all of this stuff. It's just too much. But you want to see a fishery migrate and where people are going to the commercial fisheries are going to move, which is an experience people can have physically. And if they want to see changes in shellfish because of acidification they can go out and look at the damn oyster bed and see it and feel it and understand it it's really uh, fisheries is a great way to understand climate change and to reach people uh, the challenges ahead are enormous and uh, I agree with what the senator was saying you you have a way of approaching this issue with an open mind inclusive a clear understanding of how the challenge has to bring people in. It's not a didactic approach. You're not trying to preach to people. You're not hammering people to get on board and do it this way. It's the kind of sophisticated advocacy that we are going to need going forward on climate change. Um, I respect the guys who file the lawsuits, and I always thought, you know, on, 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 the spotted owlition organ uh, that the earth first guys out there chaining themselves to the tree contributed to the conversation but the real work uh brad is in the universe that you are occupying the the area of of nuance uh, sophistication understanding legitimate trade-offs the interests across the board the necessity of finding solutions people can get behind uh, it's a great service, and I hope there's more people like you coming down that's, the pike. Cause that's, we, that's leadership. What, that's, that's what we need. That's what we're talking about, Tyler. That is, that's the kind of leadership we need. That is leadership, being being able to see that it's not 100% one way or 100% the other. It's just a bajillion shades of gray, and you're shading this way and that way, yeah. gently, a little bit of throttle, a little bit of break, uh, and... To informing doing the hard work which yeah. is what you're talking about which is setting the right expectations and making sure that you know particularly as we discussed on this show that communities are not left out um, because that will be the fail that will be the weak yeah. link in the chain that will break the whole system mm-hmm. um, but I agree uh, final thoughts Brad mm. Well, I, I, I'm thinking about the, the, the people who were my mentors coming up, and some of whom still are, you know, who, uh, who understood all this from the beginning. I mean, Bill Pustin was an old Finnish 
gillnetter on the Columbia, who is one of the people who took me under wing. Bill used to go up and talk to farmers in the interior of the Columbia River and say, you know, we wear the same boots, let's help each other. And uh, it, that's what it takes. Wow. Um, and you know, that starting in the 30s, they, they were doing this, they, he and other fishermen. Uh, it was a kind of dockside diplomacy that extended uh, inland to the to the folks who were their competitors for the for the water, but that you know that smarts that you know we we are in the same boot. We just you know we just don't know it most of the time. Let's let's build alliances to get things done where we keep the river healthy for both of us. It's just crucial, and you know it just goes right back to that beautiful gospel song. Uh, you know. None of us are free if one of us is chained. Yeah. So good. Uh, thank you, Brad. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Brad Warren. He is the president and executive director of the National Fisheries Conservation Center and the director of one of their key programs, Global Ocean Health. Uh, you can find their website. Brad, what's the address if people want to learn more about what you're doing? Sure, globaloceanhealth.org is the one for Global Ocean Health and fisheriesconservation.org for NFCC. Great to hear from you. Always great to hear from the Pacific Northwest. Some of our most forward-thinking environmental policy comes out of the West Coast of the United States. And I got to say that being here in Texas, we're not at the forefront of this issue at all. We're doubling down. Well, we had the Open Beaches Act. I mean, we we have a few. That was a nice... uh, Climate change, we're not... I don't even know if we even admit it in Texas yet. Well, it's, it's, it's still a way to get 86 from the bar, right? Yeah. Um, gentlemen, what a pleasure. Thank you. I, I'm grateful for the work of ASPN, and I thank you for carrying all that water. Thank you very much, Brad, for being on the network. And ladies and gentlemen, Brad Warren, host of the Changing Waters podcast. So check it out on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and uh, you'll find it on Coastal News Today if you click Brad Warren's name. Under the ASPN tab, you'll get all of the shows that Brad has done to date. And there's a lot of great shows in here. Uh, really innovative and forward-thinking stuff. Thanks a lot, Brad. Appreciate it. Have a great, have a great week. Thank you kindly. You too.